Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. For free resources and free messages, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us for more information at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. It says in this passage, Dan Jerubbabel, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Harad, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Mori in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand has saved me. Now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned to the people 20 and 2,000, and there remained 10,000. So we can figure out what that means. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people yet are yet too many. Bring them down to the water, and I'll try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I shall say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whosoever I say unto thee, it shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So I brought down the people unto the water. The Lord said unto Gideon, everyone that lappeth the water with his tongue as a dog, Lappeth him, except by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth himself on his knees. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. The Lord said unto Gideon, By the 300 that lapped, will I save you. Deliver the Midianites into thine hand. All the other people go everywhere, man, to his own place. So that's a huge, huge group of the enemies of Israel. They're described in uh, Judges 6.33. It says, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of East were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. And so there were so many of Israel's enemies that were gathered together. Midianites, Amalekites, children of the East. They spread themselves out over this big valley of Jezreel, which spreads out from the north and to the east from starting from Mount Carmel. And that valley of Jezreel is the same as the valley of Armageddon. It's a huge valley. It's actually part of the great Rift Valley that starts north there and runs all the way down, goes to Ethiopia. So, you know, of course, the most intelligent place for scantibodies to build their facility is right in the middle of the Rift Valley, right? <laughs> it's because it's going to flood with water someday anyway. So this great valley of Jezreel is just covered with the enemies of Israel, of Israel, the Jewish people, and they're determined to destroy them. And here's Gideon, and he's preparing his army to fight against them, and Gideon is, is he's scared out of his mind. He's just, he's so afraid. What is he ever going to do? And he needs to make sure that God is really with him in this. So he asked God for the sign, you remember, to help him be assured that God's really going to save the enemy. So he says to God, tonight, please make the ground dry, make the fleece wet. He does that. And then God does that. And Gideon is still scared out of his mind. And so he says to God, okay, the next night, don't get angry. He says to God, don't get angry. That's very smart. Remember the first principle in life, don't make God mad? All right, so he says, don't get angry. He says, but tonight, make the fleece dry in all the ground. Well, he does that. So he's, this is some kind of an assurance for Gideon. I don't know. You see, I can just picture him walking there and says, you know, the fleece was wet, the fleece was dry. The fleece was wet, the fleece, and somehow this gives him. You know. And so now he's got this big army of 32,000 men, and God tells him, for, he says, anyone who's scared, go home. So he says, anybody scared, go home. So 22,000 go home. 
And Gideon thinks to himself, well, I'm scared. God didn't tell us if I could go home, you know. <laughs> and he looks at the remaining 10,000 and he says, I have 10,000 liars. <laughs> I know they're all scared, but they're lying. And then he goes through this, this next culling exercise and he's left with just 300 men, 300 men to defeat him. Now, what's that all about, the two cullings going from the 32,000 men down to 10,000 and down to 300? Well, God said the principle behind the cullings in verse two. It says, the Lord said it again, the people that are with thee are too many for me. They're too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves. So the Lord says they were too many for God. And then the second calling, he said again in verse four, the people are yet too many. And then he says, you know, he goes to the destination of 300. Now, what's very important is to see there is that the principle that they were too many to give, to repeat it again and again, is that why was 32,000 too many? And why was 10,000 too many? Lest Israel vaunt themselves, he said, against me, saying, mine own hand, save me. So God's principle is to make the victory crystal clear. This was God who did it. Because he didn't want Israel to vaunt, and the Hebrew word is ar, which means to glorify. It's the word that comes from a root, which means to adorn or put jewelry on. It's like, this is the word that's used in Hebrew, where the tree, when it emerges from the winter time to the springtime, and it comes out with all those beautiful blossoms and flowers and, and, and leaves, that's the word. So he doesn't want Israel to walk around like a tree that's come out of winter and walk up and down and say, you see this hand, everybody? Isn't this a beautiful hand? This hand delivered me from the Midianites. That's what happened. So he says, I won't tolerate that. God says, I won't tolerate that because I want to make it crystal clear. So he says, you know, I'm going to cut you down to just 300. Now, this principle is also described in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, where Paul says, look at yourselves, he says in the church. Look at yourself. You see your calling? You know, there's not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. You feel real good now? (laughs) God has just called you the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world. Okay, we agree with that. God chose a 99-year-old man. He was a weak, with a lot of woe list. And to confound the things that are mighty, to confuse them. And base things of the world. It's getting better, isn't it? And things which are despised. God's talking about us. God chosen, yea, and things which are not. To bring to not, zero, the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. He hates that. God will not tolerate a pa'ar, a glorying in his presence. He said in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that's my name. My glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. He said in Isaiah 48, 11, for mine own sake, even for mine own sake will I do it. How should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. So, If Israel or any of us walk around and say, look at me, I did this, then God said, you polluted my name, and I won't tolerate it. You polluted my name. So therefore, he weakeneth 
the strength of the mighty. He weakened Gideon's army till the victory would be clearly seen as his. He weakens Abraham by letting him get to 99 years old. He weakens so that when he brings a deliverance, there's only one person who gets the glory. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, 2001, you know the story, maybe you don't. We were accused by the $6 billion Quest Diagnostics. They accused me of infringing their patent, but that was only because I just accused them of killing patients. Apart from that, everything was fine. You know? <laughs> I accused them of knowingly deceiving the doctors and patients about their faulty PTH test that resulted in harm to patients. And so the consequence, they waged a frivolous patent infringement case against us. Suit against Scandivisor 2002. So where are we? After 25 years of being in business, we only had a million dollars in the bank. And our legal fees were $8 million. We had to write checks for $8 million. So how do you write checks for $8 million for your lawyers when you only have a million dollars in the bank? See, that's called a weak position. <laughs> okay. And we had to come up with, we were building, our first building at Ducati, and that was costing $8 million. So we needed a loan from the bank. And before we got sued, everything was kosher. They were going to give us the loan. But after we got sued, then our bank says to us, you know, like the tuna, sorry, Charlie. He says, no loan for you. You know, We don't make loans for legal fees. So that's also called a weak position. You know, So after five years being in and out of court and legal and law offices and depositions in German, because the patent was in German, and in English, and nobody is minding the shop, you know, so to speak. Nobody's minding the shop. <laughs> We're just tuned. But after five years, we finally won the patent case. Took an appeal, but we finally won. Miraculously, during that time, we stayed out of debt. Well, we really didn't have any choice. God knew that. So the Lord Jesus Christ, during that time, he rained profits on us. And we got $15 million in excess profits when we weren't minding the shop. Now, that's not normal. I mean, we were 25 years, we're minding the shop, we got $1 million. And five years of nine, not, not minding the shop, and we got $15 million. Okay? You know what that means? We're not necessary. <laughs> no, that's what that means is, that's clearly the hand of God. That's God, par. that's God who gets the glory. That's God's ornamentation. That's God's beauty, see? Because he had to strip us down where we're sitting in a conference room and the lawyers say, well, it cost you two to three million dollars to defend yourself. And we're already figuring two to three million dollars. We only have a million dollars. And the the builders say, you owe us eight million dollars. Oh, and then the lawyers end up, like I said, it cost us eight million dollars. So that two to three, that was code. Every, (laughs) Every time we were going through this case, our lawyers kept saying, how's business? How's business? I thought, why are they so interested in our business? <laughs> so they could charge us more. <laughs> That's how they charged us for $8 million. But anyway, but God took care of us during all the time. He stripped us down. He weakened us to have nothing before he defeated uh, Quest for us. God stripped Abraham down to be 99 years old. God stripped Gideon's army down to just 300. And this is the background to keep in mind when we come to Genesis 17.1. So it was then... That's why it says when. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine. That means then. (laughs) So chapter 17 is really a chapter where God reveals 
this wonderful things. And all these things are going to happen in chapter 17 through new names. God is going to reveal a new name. He starts off in verse 1, and God reveals a new name for himself when he says, I am the Almighty God. Then in verse 5, God is going to reveal a new name for Abram. It's going to be Abraham, as you know. And then in verse 15, God is going to reveal a new name for Sarai. And then we're going to see in verse 19, God reveals the new name for the child that's not even born yet. It's going to be called Isaac. And then in verse 20, God's going to explain further the name of Ishmael. So this is a chapter of names. And only when you follow the names, then you understand what the chapter's all about. It's a chapter where God is going to reveal more fully his plans, his purposes, and he reveals this through names, by giving new names and explaining what they mean. So the key to understanding this chapter is follow the names. Follow the names that God gives in the explanation. So the first understanding that we have to come to is in the first verse where God says, I am the Almighty God. So, in other words, when Abraham's 90 years old and 90, the Lord appears to him. It's exactly what Paul meant in the weakened state there. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I sought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. The power of Christ may rest upon me. I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then am I strong. These verses in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, They could be said about Abraham. Abraham can repeat these verses. He can say, lest I, Abraham, should be exalted above measure through all the miracles that God has already done for me. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh. It's called being 99 years old. That was my thorn in the flesh. And so Abraham can say, but it was all worth it because when I was weak, then I was strong. So a new name for it that God gives in this state of weakness that's never been before in the Bible is this, as we said, is this word El Shaddai, because God in his all-powerfulness is able to do everything that he's promised here in this chapter. And that's why the name is so important. He's going to do all this. He's going to accomplish all this because he's the omnipotent God. And so then God tells Abraham, now, I'm the Almighty God. And your job, Abraham, is to walk before me and be thou perfect. So God is telling Abraham, you need to take a particular position with me. God did not tell Abraham, walk beside me, where Abraham could look and say, oh, there's God. I'm walking right next to him. There he is. Whenever I need to see him, I just look to my side and I see him. There's God. But God did not tell Abraham to walk behind him where Abraham could always say, well, there he is, right in front of me. I'm just following along. I can see him anytime I want. I just lift up my eyes. There's God. But God told Abraham to walk before him, walk in front of God, with God behind him. And when God called Abraham to walk so that God was behind him, God meant that Abraham, you don't turn around. You just know I'm there. You don't turn around and you don't look because you know I'm there, and you go, 13 years, you're not going to see me, but just keep on walking in front of me. I'm behind you. Don't turn around. That's a picture of faith, to walk before God without seeing God, but knowing that God is behind and watching us, that's the picture of faith. That's how Joseph was able, by walking before God, to resist the seduction of Potiphar's wife when it says, 
in Genesis 39, 8 through 9, it talks about Joseph. He said, but he refused and said unto his master's wife, behold, my master wanteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath into my hand. It says, into my hand. See, he wasn't Jewish Ashkenazi. He said, my hand. <laughs> anyway, there is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, to walk before God, it changes the life. That's what will keep us, Donna says, keep us to have short accounts with God. To walk before God is to realize that every wrong thought that we think that's seen by God instantly, he sees it because he's behind us. And that all causes us to immediately confess, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, okay, I'm sorry. Keep a short account with God. So when God told Abraham to walk before him, Abraham adopted this concept, this mentality of himself. I'm walking before God. That's how Abraham thought of himself from this point forward for the rest of his life. I am walking in front of God. And he saw himself this way. And others saw this about Abraham as well, that Abraham, they would describe him. Who's Abraham? He's a man who's, who walks before God. He walks in front of God. He says he walks in front of God, and he does walk in front of God. And so when Eliezer, Abraham's servant, was sent to go get uh, Rebekah, and he's explaining to Rebekah's family who Abraham is. Because what do they know? He's going to tell them about Abraham. So Eliezer, in that scene there, he has to carefully sort through all the things that he knows about Abraham, all the things that have impressed him about Abraham, all the things that Abraham has said, and he's sorting through all these things in his mind as he's putting together how he's going to describe Abraham, and he tells them in Genesis 24, 39 through 40, here's how he says it. He's telling Rebecca's family about what would happen if Rebecca refused to come. So he says, and I said unto my master, that's Abraham. So Eliezer says to his master, peradventure, the woman will not follow me. He was a very smart man. <laughs> he understood woman psychology. Anyway, peradventure, the woman will not follow me. Now he's going to tell them, because see, this is going to reveal the kind of person Abraham is. So he's going to tell them what Abraham said. And so he, and in verse 40, Genesis 24, 40, and he said unto me, So now you listen carefully because I'm just going to tell you who my master is. He said unto me, the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with thee, will prosper thy way, should take a wife from my son of my kindred in my father's house. So he said, so he's saying, he says, listen, you need to understand this about my master. He said, and he is. This is a real good description of him when he said, the Lord before whom I walk. In other words, he told me, he explained to me, Eliezer, I can't see God because I'm walking in front of him. But I don't need to see God to trust and obey him. And this is what so impressed Eliezer about Abraham, that he really walked before God, and he's telling the family that. That's a pattern for us. Abraham's a pattern for us there. We should walk before God to be, and to be perfect. That's the word tamim. That has the idea of completeness or sincerity or integrity. That's the word that is tamim. That's the word to me without blemish. That's the word that's used in Exodus 12, 4 through 5, when it was describing for the Jewish families what kind of a lamb they should look for to select to sacrifice for the Passover. And that was the word. He says, you look for a lamb, tamim, without blemish. Throughout the book of Numbers, this is the word which is also used, which is translated there as without spot. 
So again, they said, when you go to get an animal for sacrifice, you get the animal tamim, without spots, not spots in his coats. It's a word that's also used for the first word, the first verse in Psalm 119, where it starts off and it says, blessed are the tamim, and it's translated in our Bible, blessed are the undefiled in the way. Blessed are the tamim in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. And what God says he'll do because he's the Almighty, he's going to make this covenant. So I'll make the covenant, and he explains that. He's going to multiply the exceedingly. He says, multiply the exceedingly, and the word me'od is the word exceedingly, the word very much. The little boy in Hebrew school, they always just say, tov me'od, tov me'od. They said, that, good, very much, good, very much. They never said that to me. They said that to other kids, but anyway. <laughs> but that's me'od. So God said, God promised to increase you me'od, very much. And as a matter of fact, the way it's written here, it's said twice. Very much, very much. So Abraham hears these words. You know, is God's going to increase meod, meod, very much, very much. And he says, I don't understand. I don't understand. That's Abraham. I don't understand. Because in Romans 4, 17 through 21, it says that, that God, he believed, the God who's quickening the dead And it says, he being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead. And when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's room. And he staggered not, but he was strong in faith and so forth. Now, in those verses, the word that he used to describe himself in Sarah's room was dead. And Abraham thought about his own condition. He said, is dead. And he thought about Sarah's condition. He said, her womb is deadness, dead, dead, dead. And he says, I don't understand how life can come out of dead, deadness. And he's trying to figure it all out, and he can't figure it out because it's just, it's something he doesn't understand. But he refuses to consider what he sees. He considered not his own body now dead or the deadness of Sarah's womb. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't understand it, but he's not gonna dwell on it. He doesn't think about it. And so, you know, this is a real scene for us here because the question comes back to us, what do we do? What do you do when you're shocked at some problem? When you don't understand, and when there's the constant voice in your ear that says, think about this, consider this. What do you think about this? Isn't it getting darker and darker and darker? And this is Abraham here. And what do you do? Seeing this scene is so important. When you don't understand and you're shocked, you do exactly what Abraham did in verse three. See verse three? Abraham, Abram, fell on his face. He fell on his face. What do you do? You worship. That's what you do. That's what he did. He worshiped. He said, I don't understand how you're telling me that my seed is going to increase meod, meod, but I'm in a state of shock, you know, because I'm not blind. And so what do I do? Lord, I worship you. And what do you do when you're in a state of shock? And, you know, the doctor says, you have cancer. And you don't hear anything else. You're a shock and you don't understand, what's your first response? You're supposed to go to God and say, God, you know, you don't understand. I got this problem and that problem. And look, God, you know, did you see the MRI report, God? You know, you don't, what do you do? You just turn to God and you say, Lord Jesus, I worship you. That's the picture of verse three. Lord Jesus, I worship you. That's the lesson for us when we look at Abraham is his response. Lord Jesus, I worship you. Let's pray. Father, we do worship you. We worship you, Lord Jesus. And we worship you when we understand. We worship you when we don't understand. We worship you to understand. 
And we thank you, Lord, for showing us what we should do through the life of Abraham this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at Tom Cantor. That's T-O-M-C-A-N-T-O-R, Tom Cantor, at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Thanks for listening to Friendship with God with Tom Cantor. Looking for an exciting career in the medical field or biotech industry? Join Scanabody's Biologics, founded by a Christian businessman, Tom Cantor. It's a premier company dedicated to advancing patient care and serving the community of San Diego. Scanabody's has global operations and over 700 employees and growing. And if you have a heart for people and a desire to join a leading biotech company, call us 619-258-9300, 619-258-9300, scanabodies.com, that's scanabodies.com.